Previously on Dream Realm. During this trial, you will hear the evidence which implies that Rachel's demise was murder. You will see how her car was clearly ran off the side of the road. You will see how her charred body was placed in a way which implies she had not died upon impact explosion. James Disconella is guilty of these crimes and deserves to go to jail. Now, one thing Ms. Furman forgot to mention was that my client did have an alibi. He was home at the time of Rachel's accident. In fact, he had a phone call with his best friend Ryan Patters at 12.15 in the morning. And the truth is that my client is innocent. So he's changed that much. You don't know my son as well as you think you do! What happened? <sighs> Ryan Patters doesn't want to testify because he wasn't really on the phone with James. But addiction to an escapism? That's when it's bad. You're listening to episode three to the audiobook slash podcast project, Dream Realm. Voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Part one, chapter eight. With the potential perjury and the alibi thrown out of the case, Jordan was feeling rather good on Thursday morning on the third day of the trial. Today, and most likely tomorrow, would be spent looking at the forensic evidence. Jordan already knew that the jury could see that James was far from being an angel. At this point, the winning argument would come with the analysis of the evidence. Jordan's argument would be that the evidence is not consistent with other accidents and would point to clear violations where, indeed, murder and setup had been done. Maximilian would argue the opposite. Just because it doesn't meet the norm doesn't mean that it was a setup. No doubt he'd have some experts who have some kind of logic behind what was clearly crime-turned-fabricated accident. So that's why if she had crashed the car, the car would have looked more like this than how the car ended up looking. Dr. Shauna Livingston explained as they looked at the photo of how the car crashed versus how it should have crashed. Even if Rachel had only been going 25 instead of the normal 40 miles per hour, she would have ended up further down the ditch. Instead, it looks like the car barely rolled off the highway, and then you get to the problem with the fire. I am rather convinced that not only was the car going 10 miles or less, but even then, it is statistically impossible for a fire to start. There was barely a collision. We only see cars blow up in flames if there was a heavy impact. Sometimes the impact mixes with something like a cigarette or a lighter, but it appears well documented that Rachel did not smoke. So what do you think happened? Jordan asked her expert. Well, even without the body and looking at the car element to this incident, it appears that someone slowly forced the car off the road. There appear to be no braking screech marks, which indicates the car is going out of control or, you know, the turn is too steep to be made at high speed. You know, had such a turn happened at high speed, the car would have flipped over. I believe someone drove the car off the road, but did so to make it appear that there was an accident. There is no chance that the fire happened due to the car itself. While we can't inspect the car properly to verify that, I've yet to see an explosion happen by what appears to be a 10 mile per hour dive into a ditch. Is it possible that Rachel did become unconscious during this incident? Let's say that she did drive off the road. Most likely, she would not have become unconscious from this incident. I suppose it's probable, but it's not likely. And even then, you have the question of the fire. Now, there is the evidence on the burning frame of the car that the car might have been pushed or hit. Can you tell us more about that? 
there is evidence in the frame that the car was tackled by another car. And it's possible that this happened prior or after being ran off the road. Friends and family alike can attest that there was no gaping injury to her car prior to July 15th. Unless the accident or incident happened then under the 14th, we can assume the car received this bump, the injury, the night of the crime. So with this added evidence about the car, what do you think could have happened? Someone drove up next to Rachel and she slowed down. The car next to her slammed into her and caused her to either pull over or maybe cause the trip into the ditch altogether. After a couple of more questions, Jordan handed over Dr. Livingston to Maximilian DeChant. Dr. Livingston, is it possible that Rachel was the one to drive herself off the road? It is possible, but it is unlikely. So, in this scenario of Rachel driving off the road, it is possible she became unconscious. Yes, but... And perhaps Rachel did end up smoking that day. We can't be sure, can we? We could suppose she didn't smoke, or suppose she didn't have an open flame in the car, but what if she did? I doubt she'd have an open flame. What would she be doing? Making candles? The cigarette is a good example. She'd been stressed with work. Maybe with a friend, family, her marriage, uh, maybe another lover. Who knows? But a cigarette on the way home. She spun out, even at 10 miles per hour. The crash caused maybe a leak of gas. The, The cigarette wasn't put out properly. Is this likely? It is very unlikely, but still likely. Yes. So we can't disprove that, can we? No. So what can we prove? That the car did tumble into that ditch? And how would someone be able to cause that car to crash on their own? You could tie a rock or a brick to the pedal. That seems like an archaic method, but a method all the same. So someone would have had to load the pedal, and then they would have had to turn the car wheel too. Or perhaps someone drove the car into the ditch besides Rachel. If explained why they only went 10 miles per hour, a true accident, she would have been going the speed limit if she truly was spinning out of control. Moving on to the car injury. You said that someone rammed into Rachel the morning of the 15th, but how do we know that that happened in the parking lot at Shanties, or maybe it happened long before that. Just because people don't remember seeing something happen to a car doesn't mean it happened. We can only assume, but it does provide a theory that the accident wasn't an accident at all. So, do we have any definitive proof behind what might be a bump in the car frame? So there was a car accident at some point. I believe that's all we know. It appears like it might have happened that night, and it's worth pointing out. Is it worth pointing out because it helps the dregs of this argument against my client? No, because it it provides possible context. Do you see how this conversation goes? It goes back and forth. Maybe, maybe not. Probable and possible. It's worth mentioning, Mr. DeChant. This continued until Maximilian believed that he had ended up spinning and confusing the jury. Without too much effort, he had indeed made any theory seem skeptical, although Jordan's next witness was specifically about the autopsy. State your name for the record, Jordan asked. My name is Dr. Willis Bernard. I am the city's mortician and autopsy specialist. Can you tell me the reason for Mrs. Disconella's death? 
It is not evident, although there is a possibility that there was some kind of drugging involved. And why do you believe drugging was involved? We could not find any evidence of a gunshot or wound otherwise. Her body was burned for good measure, but it appears like she died before the flame, and without any other reason we believe she could have taken drugs or been forced to overdo, overdose. Uh, it's possible, too, that she had a heart attack or some kind of health problem that occurred while she was out on the road. Is there anything else that rules out what might have been a heart attack or a health problem? Well, it uh, appears like she managed to slow down before crashing, so we believe that she might have had some kind of awareness. A heart attack, a stroke, an aneurysm, or anything of the like probably wouldn't have caused her to slow down, but maybe falling asleep at the wheel might have uh, more likely been an indication of why she'd slowed down on the highway. How do you know that she died before the fire? Well, one easy and well-known fact is the lungs. There was no smoke in the lungs, which is indicative of the fact that she was not breathing in the smoke. Even an unconscious body has to breathe. Only a dead body would not be breathing. But if the car was going 10 miles per hour or so when it hit the ditch, then how is it possible that she was killed? The chances of her dying from such a collision would be impossible, unless she some had, you know, she had a hypermedical condition where a simple injury could kill her. If she had been drugged, it's possible that an overdose could have killed her. From the way she died, slumped over the wheel, that also seems likely. Can you tell us more about the position she had over the wheel? Her body was hunched over the wheel, as if she had indeed hit her head on the front or back of her chair, and then had gone unconscious and leaned forward. The seatbelt was around her body. Her feet were haphazardly on the pedals below. Is there anything suspicious about the placement of the body? It seems almost too convenient. This would be the exact placement one would think happens during a car accident. The truth is more likely her body would have been slumped against the window or the side of the seat, or feet would have potentially just been on the brake. Her hands would have probably been covering her face and thus angled as if relieved from that position. So it seems posed. It does. Maximilian soon took control of the city's top mortician. Is it possible that she naturally was in this position? Possible, but not likely. So, I'm hearing that it's possible that's how her body ended up. Uh, I suppose so. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that she was drugged, and then mentioned that it could potentially be a health-related cause. Isn't it more likely that Rachel could have had a stroke or a heart attack than being drugged? And when would she have been drugged? While driving, alone, and in her car? These are just theories. Well, excuse me, Dr. Bernard, but you and Dr. Livingston appear to be only made of theories, and I believe the only things which appear to be true are these. The car slowed down to 10 miles per hour before crashing, and that she died prior to the fire. There are a few more things which also happened. No, the rest of it probably happened. Maximilian looked up at Judge Fong. I'm done with this witness. Chapter 9 after landlocking with Jordan's witnesses, it appeared like it was time for Maximilian to make a break with his singular witness. While Jordan had relied on Dr. Livingston to go to over the car details and Dr. Bernard to talk about the body, Maximilian brought forth Dr. Richard Dendry, who would be going over alternative theories to explain that there is no definitive evidence that James Discanella could have done this crime. 
Instead, as Dr. Dendry would state over and over under Maximilian's phrasing, James Discanella was a victim of a state looking to find someone guilty for what was unfortunately an accident. A large part of this trial talked about possibility and probability. Maximilian cooed the southern drawl, basking everyone in a nice ray of light. So what do you think probably happened? I think Rachel got tired, or perhaps there was a medical problem. She tried to slow down and pull off the side of the road and crashed into a ditch. She sustained some kind of injury, perhaps a crash to her head. She bled out and died. Gas or oil leaked from the car. Someone tossed a cigarette out their window, or the dry heat formed a spark with the car wiring, and the car was on fire after she had passed. Interesting perspective, Maximilian completed. And with all the presented evidence, do you believe that James is innocent? Not only do I believe James' story, but I don't believe there's any evidence to convict him. Even if I felt like James might be guilty, there's nothing to prove that. Thank you for your testimony. Maximilian nodded. The prosecution may cross-examine my witness. Judge Fong nodded as Jordan remained seated at the chair behind her table. Dr. Gendry, you believe that there is no evidence that James Discanella did this, correct? That is correct. Yet, you argue that everything is skeptical and probable, so there is a chance that James did this. Uh, uh, Dr. Dendry paused for a second before answering truthfully. There is a chance. As there is a chance for many things with the speculative evidence, but I do not believe James is involved. Why do you think he's not involved? Because this appears to truly be an accident. I, I don't think foul play was responsible. You are aware that James Discanella did not have an alibi that night in early morning. We are not able to confirm his whereabouts. You know this, correct? Yes, I do. You realize that James also has a history of assault and violence, both of which are steps towards the act of murder. Yes? I realize that as well. You realize that many people in this room have attested to the strain of their relationship, many people citing that their relationship was bitter and caustic? I realize that, but you have to realize that just because the relationship was not picture perfect doesn't mean he was going to kill her. You're a doctor. You tell me why people kill. They kill for profit, for motive, for passion, by accident, on purpose, for war, for fun. So James could have killed her because of passion. After all, she was just doing a job that he didn't want her to do. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe James just wanted to run her off the road just to teach her a lesson. But she died, and so he had to torch the car. Maybe he had fun with this. He had been suppressing the violence so much that it just exploded. It whiplashed outward into murder? I, I, I don't think those situations happened. So you think that instead of an unaccounted-for violent man staging the accident and murdering his wife, you think she ended up falling off the highway into a ditch at 10 miles per hour while smoking a cigarette, which caused a fire to spill out, a fire which she died prior to. I don't even respond because you know you have to know how ridiculous that sounds. Jordan was on a roll, and she was ready to steamroll Dr. Dendry. Even if you want to be skeptical, the evidence points that James Discanella is somewhat capable of murder. And if you don't believe that, then you aren't looking at the data correctly. We can confirm that we don't know where James Discanella was because his original alibi is a lie. We can confirm that he has two assaults on record, plus a handful informal assaults which have been taking place at bars across Cardonia. 
Do you believe a man like that is completely innocent off the bat? Wouldn't you suspect, or at least turn your head and wonder, that he might have played a hand in the death of Rachel Disconella? I have thought of it, Dr. Dendry admitted, sheepishly, while Maximilian's face blanched out a bit. Of course you would, because any person would think it's probable that he committed this crime. Did you hear the evidence presented yesterday, Dr. Dendry? No, I did not. <laughs> well, maybe I should forge you the transcripts, because it's highly unlikely that Rachel's death was an accident. You plant that together with the facts we know about James Disconella, and you have murder. She had dismantled Dr. Dendry in less than five seconds, and with a single turn to Judge Fong, declared her line of questioning over. There was a break for lunch, and following lunch there would be closing sentences. Maximilian could not help but shoot Jordan a couple glares as she ate her cheese and almonds outside the courtroom while handling some emails. Rachel's family, who had been at the courthouse with determination, once again praised Jordan's delivery and line of questioning. They appeared less nervous than they had been earlier. Soon they had returned to finish the case. The light Friday sunshine she could see during her break was not present within the windowless and man-made courtroom. Jordan stood up to deliver her closing remarks about the case, and she decided to keep it short and to the point. We know that James Disconella and Rachel Disconella had a borderline violent relationship, evidenced by James's background. He originally claimed to have an alibi, which was found to be unusable in this trial, meaning he did not have an alibi. Why he would want to kill Rachel is a bit of a mystery, although none of his previous assaults appeared to have meaning. Getting into fight with men over women, high school teams, and other simple topics proves that he isn't capable of making rational decisions. Maybe he got angry at her and wanted to prove who was the boss. Maybe he accidentally killed her and couldn't look back. The evidence practically proves that Rachel's accident was not an accident. James had the relationship with her. James had the predisposition for violence. It's clear he was involved, although he remains mute about his involvement. It's a shame we didn't have one passerby driver who came across the scene, and even in the glory age of 2060, we still don't have cameras everywhere. It's possible for someone like James Disconella to almost get away with murder, but let's not forget, he won't get away with it today. Maximilian remains strong in his closing argument. Jordan's narrative works well because... It's a narrative. There's nothing strong to behold and true there. There's, there's no heavy facts. There's a beautiful story. But are you going to believe a possible story of what could have happened? No. I hope instead you look for the truth of the story. Rachel's accident was an accident, and if someone was involved, there's no way to say who was involved. But it's easy to blame James because of his past, which he has been working for years to erase. It's easy to say, well, this might have happened. But in the United States, we are out to find the truth. We are here to believe someone is innocent unless evidence confirms they are guilty. I don't know about you, but there wasn't anything said that made Jim's Disconella guilty. Jordan felt a bit nervous. Maximilian was right in some ways, although she had to wonder if the jury was going to think logically or emotionally. She looked at the jury, wondering if she could see it in their faces, but most of the jury looked somewhat stone cold. Instead, she continued to soak in Maximilian's charming argument. So think about all this while you deliberate, okay? Maximilian had a chance smile and sat down, which ended the main proceedings. Judge Fong spoke to the jury real quick with the typical bullshit one would expect, and so the jury went to deliberate. 
Once again, as if on clockwork, Jordan ended up consoling Rachel's family before telling them to go home. It was only midday, and the chance of a quick jury deliberation was most likely not going to happen. Outside the courtroom, Maximilian could not help but come up to Jordan with his hand extended. I'm still surprised we have not battled before, Maximilian said with a grin. It was a shame that the man was in his fifties because no doubt he was the kind of man who would make her smitten if they were the same age. This was an excellent bout. You handled yourself well, as did yourself. I usually leave the courtroom knowing how the jury is going to decide, and it's usually with me, <laughs> although I feel quite uncertain today. It comes down if they think logically, emotionally, or strictly rationally. Oh, and the fourth option, they think by the course of the law. Except any good lawyer knows that that fourth option rarely happens. Well, I'm off to lunch. I assume we'll be back by early evening, maybe? Uh, I give the jury three hours? Maximilian DeChant headed off with James Scanella, who might be experiencing either the last hours of freedom or perhaps the last few hours of being under investigation. With nothing better to do, Jordan returned to her office in the Cordonia Justice Center. She received a call soon from Lynn. How do you feel? I feel fine. I just wish I was a tad more confident that the jury is going to convict. Is it that up in the air? Maximilian's good. I swear he could get the jury to sympathize with the devil if he needed to. It's the southern charm and those devilish good looks. It's hard to say no to the man. So I guess it's the weighing game. What are you going to do while you wait? I'm just going to start looking at some new case files I'll be picking up for next week. She sighed, looking at the case files which were indeed for her to pursue before Monday and Tuesday of the following week. Granted, I can do that on Sunday. It looks like I'm taking on four new cases on Monday, two new cases on Tuesday, following up with a couple cases on those days, too. I kind of enjoy getting to focus all my effort on a big case. It's a shame it'll be a couple weeks before I get put on another. I'd rather be going after large apples than small ones. If you ever get to be the DA, then you can take all the big cases you want, Lynn exclaimed. Speaking of which, I was talking to the DA, and he might step down next year. He spoke to me about what I thought of you. What did you say? I told him the truth. You're the best prosecutor we have who is caught up with the world around us. He liked that and the other compliments I whipped up. Jesus, I hope you don't talk about me too much. Not too much, just enough. Lynn Rexstrom paused for a second. Oh, shoot, I'm going to let you go. There's someone at my door. The line ended, and so Jordan turned to the case files in front of her. However, she didn't have to wait too long for court to be back in session. Chapter 10 their sushi date was followed up with a weekend date to an organic bar and grill, which was followed up with another Wednesday meal at a restaurant with Cali Mex Cuisine. Hiram went out on a weekend trip with friends, so they ended up hanging out the next following Monday and Wednesday for dates four and five. It had now been over two weeks in this time period, and with their six-date plan for Saturday night, three weeks had now passed. Jordan knew she was a tough buyer. She had gone through multiple men like house hunting. Sometimes she had been interested in some of the offers, but she had ended up leaving after open house and never coming back. Although this time was different. She looked forward to the texts, the calls, the dates with Hiram. This was rare. It was hard for her to leave the house for any reason, let alone for a date. He matched rather well with her personality, another fact that she liked about him. While she was aggressive and almost like a predator upon prey, he was calm, collective, and sincere. Hiram was strong without the need of declaring it, while Jordan was constantly shoving her metal down the faces of others. There was an element to Hiram that was safe and rewarding while she played risky and loose. 
They weren't complete polar opposites, but they were different enough to where it could work. At least she imagined it working. There was no way for her to declare that he was going to ask her out that night on the boardwalk. They were at a seafood place called Spear, a rather sizzling mid-to-upper-class joint which featured $25 entrees and a list of fine wine. You paid for good food, but for a better view. Down below the boardwalk was the Cardonia Beach, followed up with the crest of the Pacific Ocean, which lapped like a child sucking its mother's bosom for health. It was late evening. The sun settled down nearby and splashed up hues of all colors against the sky. Nearby other tables were receiving skewers of shrimp and catches of the day, wine pouring softly from the servers into large transparent wine glasses. You look great, Hiram complimented with a smile of fascination upon his lips. Not that you wouldn't look great, but you look good too considering you're just wearing what every other guy here is wearing. Hiram laughed before sipping some of his red wine. Can't go wrong with a white button-up shirt with the first two buttons open. It's a very safe pick, but admirable all the same. Jordan was wearing a black dress, the kind which made her look desirable and attractive. In the light of the sun kissing the ocean, she looked absolutely divine. And maybe that's why in the moments to come, Hiram would say some rather powerful things. <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how I feel about you. Hiram chuckled after they had ordered food. I, I know we've only been talking for three weeks, but there's just an energy we have, you know, at least I know you have about you and I just really like that so I wanted to ask tonight if you'd consider becoming official you know boyfriend girlfriend sort of thing this is your way of asking me out because it's kind of really precious I thought you'd rather just have me ask you instead of doing a dramatic revelation or a surprise oh no no definitely you know me pretty well actually for piecing that together Gordon laughed and the answer is of course yes I would love to officially date so what happens next? Do we just continue doing what we've been doing? or I think so. It's been a second since my last relationship. We're not really relationship people, are we? No, that's not it. We just don't make a big deal about things. What kind of deals do we make? We only make the best deals, boyfriend. Hiram laughed, just like she laughed later that night back at his place. He had pushed her up against the wall of the living room, and together they had joked about fucking the shit out of each other. She guided his hands with her own, although they were so compact that not much of the space could be touched around them. They ended up on the floor of the living room, making out within the missionary position as they twisted over one another before escalating the situation. The little black dress was off, although the little black pieces of clothing were still on, the white button shirt tossed to the ground like a used rag. They eventually moved to the bedroom where she lay on her side this time. The two worked together in unison and 25 minutes later, they were cuddled together in his bed. This felt better than normal, but just the same, didn't it? He asked her, to a happy nod. It did. She whispered confidently. I'm, I'm glad this happened tonight. Me too. At the time Jordan lay within Hiram's bed, she wondered if this one was going to last. She saw two years at the minimum and figured that was a good sign. Two years to her felt more like a decade. The fact that she saw this much time was an important feat. She liked Hiram, and Jordan was happy about it all. Chapter 11 Maximilian Duchamp and James Discanella looked rather nervous behind their defense table, while Jordan Furman walked in rather confident with her case files, 
It was almost seven o'clock, but the jury was ready to spill their decision. Judge Fong perhaps looked the most neutral, while both the families looked poised to accept either an innocent or guilty verdict. A couple members of the media had returned, quietly sitting in the back like songbirds ready to spin songs. Thankfully, the media coverage had died down a bit, and the jury decision information had come at a less opportune time for the media. Has the jury reached a decision? The judge asked, turning to the foreman who stood up from the group. She had curly black hair and appeared to be in her 40s, and appeared lightly disgusted with James during the entire trial. We have, Your Honor. Please share your results with the room. The foreman coughed before reading up on the piece of paper that she had in front of her. <clears throat> on the charge of murder in the first degree, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty, the foreman proudly declared. Immediately, James Discanella began crying as he stared down at the floor beneath his seat. James's mother began to cry, too, although his father and sister looked stoic and were not as reactionary. Rachel's family had clustered together in a large hug, silently glad that Rachel received some kind of justice post-death. Before I deliver my verdict, I have a statement I'd like to make from the prior proceedings. Judge Fong had cut into the scene like a hammer within a pond. First off, this case relied on a bit of probability, and the facts were taken for granted. The fact that your client's alibi was found out to be a lie was also serious, including the rather unsolved story behind the alibi, although I digress. Mr. Disconella, it is evident that you have had many problems with violence in the past. And given the evidence, I do believe you are guilty for the murder of your wife. Not once in this court did you show remorse for her death. Not once did you acknowledge how truly unfortunate her death was either. Instead, you acted completely uninvolved in the life and death of your own wife. While my gut tells me that given the evidence, you did do this crime, it's dealing with criminals that confirms it. You're not apologetic about the situation you created. There is no remorse in your body, just excuses and a tad bit of pity. For that, Mr. Discanella, we will have the sentencing procedure scheduled in two weeks. Jury, you are dismissed. The court thanks you for your time. Externally, Jordan Furman retained the look of a serious lawyer who had put away a guilty man. Internally, she was giddy with glee from the victory, having been a while since her last major case, especially with this case being solo. I'll give you a moment to talk with your family before you're arrested, Mr. Discanella. Judge Fung offered so the Discanella family shared one hug in conversation before the bailiffs approached with handcuffs. The media were already writing and sending in transcripts and notes while Rachel's family approached Jordan for one more thank you before leaving the courtroom. No doubt they wanted to quickly leave and avoid any conversation with the Discanellas. Soon, the court officers pulled James away from his family, handcuffed him, and walked out of the courtroom. They would take him to a prisoner elevator system, which was ran independent from the staff and visitor elevators. In rage, Miss Discanella turned towards Jordan. You put him away without any true evidence. You don't have clues that he was there. Jordan remained silent and walked out of the courtroom, but soon enough the door opened and Maximilian DeChant came after her. Jordan, I, I apologize for Miss Discanella's burst at you. I, I actually admire the way you battled in court today. This was our first time at each other's necks, and I guess I underestimated you a little. Thank you for the compliment, and no worries about Mrs. Discanella. I left before she said anything too vicious. The truth is, your case is more compelling, and probably more accurate than what happened. Did he ever tell you anything? No. Whatever happened on the early morning of last year's July 15th will continue to be a mystery. 
well, he will have chances to appeal. If he's truly innocent, then he will have more chances to prove that. Uh, but lying about an alibi? That's enough for me to find him guilty, personally. I don't know. There wasn't too much evidence, Maximilian shrugged. I think for the appeal, I'll demand more testing and exhume the body. Uh, well, I'll let you get home then. Sounds like you have a lot of work to do. Sharks like you and I never stop swimming. Thank you, Jordan. I hope we meet again. I enjoy an exhilarating court battle. Maximilian DeChant turned back to the courtroom while Jordan walked down to the elevator, which would take her down to her office. She was going to drop off some papers before heading home. But before the elevator closed, one of the jury members appeared. Since it was late and the building was practically shut down, Jordan had decided to use the public elevators instead of the staff elevators. Oh, Mrs. Furman. How are deliberations? Jordan asked. She could not approach the jury before or during the trial, but with the trial over, jurors now had the freedom to speak about the case unless a gag order was in place. We went in with eleven against one in favor to convict, the jury member honestly said. It did not take too much time to swing the one. Who was the one? <laughs> it was me. Oh. Why did you think he was innocent? I didn't think he was innocent, either. I just thought there wasn't enough to convict him. I wasn't fully sure he was guilty. You know, what if perhaps this was the exception? That all the evidence that pointed that someone else didn't do it was right, or that the experts were misreading the scene. But then you have all those people practically yelling at you, and I'm not a strong girl either. I'd rather avoid all that. So I flipped and turned over, even though I wish that there was something more fully convincing. The elevator opened up to Jordan's office floor and she stepped out of the elevator. <sighs> Sometimes it's not about perfection, but deadlocking probability, Jordan sighed. This was a tough case and I'm sorry that you felt the way you did. I'm just worried we locked away an innocent man. Well, if it makes you feel better, Maximilian is going to appeal and raise hell to find more evidence, so maybe new eyes will look over the forensics. That does make me feel better, you know... This whole thing's intimidating, you know, how am I supposed to know someone's ability or inability to commit a crime, Miss Furman? I... I'm just a retail supervisor. The elevator doors began to close as the jury member meekly smiled towards Jordan. Jordan immediately walked past Teresa Jones Manor's abandoned secretary desk and continued onward. Prosecutors had 24-hour access to the floor, and there were a couple lights on among the dark rooms. Interestingly enough, even on a Friday at 7.30, some people didn't have much of a life to leave for. Jordan detoured from her office and walked towards the light within January Fisher's office. Knock, knock, Jordan muttered as she walked through the open door. What are you doing here? I'm eating friends at eight, like two blocks over for drinks, and I'd rather work another three hours and just go home on dress and lay around for an hour before I had to get ready again. January chuckled. How about you? This is late. Oh, oh, wait, did your jury verdict come back? Yep, I put him away. Oh, that's excellent, Jordan. January gasped a bit before sitting up and hugging Jordan. January pulled away soon after and sat back down. I knew you could do it. I, you're an amazing lawyer. You are too. Jordan smiled before her phone rang. She answered it. What's up? Can I meet with you? Elias DeAngelis said in a rather hurried tone. I need your opinion on a case. Can't we just talk over the phone? No, because I'm bringing over folders of shit for you to see. Okay. Jordan shrugged. Where are you? I'll come to you. I'm still at the Justice Center on the prosecutor's floor. 
Okay, I'll meet you at your office. I should be there in 15. The phone line ended and Jordan turned up to January. Eliza's on his way over. He sounded panicked. Jordan explained to the curious January whose eyebrows were practically on edge. Oh, maybe he's nervous to plow you down on that big prosecutor's desk. That's totally not it, Jordan dryly laughed. It seems like he's into some kind of trouble or something. Oh, girl, boys with trouble are always trouble. You better move on from that kind of bad juju. January, you don't even know boys. You like girls. Just because I like to eat a woman doesn't mean I don't know how men eat women. You forget. I'm constantly objectified by men. I'm constantly surrounded by men. Uh, hell, I wish I could just be around women and only women all the time, but I make sacrifices. Don't you have friends to get to or perhaps eat yourself? Nah, the eating comes at 11 or midnight for a 30-year-old woman like me. 33, I believe. Shh, we round down in Cardonia. Chapter 12 Jordan was filing papers away in her office to pass the time it took for Elias DeAngelis to arrive, but when he did, it was noticeable. He closed the door behind him, placed three heavy folders down upon Jordan's desk. The three folders lay next to each other, as if she was about to pick up a folder out of the three, or pick the folder which hid the coin. Care to explain what has your panties tied up in a bunch? Yeah, I'm feeling partially crazy, because everyone else around me is being stupid and stubborn. Really? You're usually the stubborn one, so care to elaborate on what's making you act so dramatically crazy? Remember on Monday when I said I had that murder case? Yeah. Well, let me start there. Elias turned to the first folder and pulled out a photo of a young white girl with blonde hair and a pretty face. She appeared rather ordinary although the earrings she wore were feathers. This was Marie Gibbons. She was 22, lived in her own apartment. She finished undergrad just recently and was working on getting her PhD in physical therapy. She worked for the Cardona University basketball team as their head physical therapist, all at such a young age. Her body was discovered after she failed to come in for work. When we arrived to the scene, the initial report was that she had been choked to death due to the markings around her neck. Sadly, they were unable to pull any evidence of fingerprints from her neck. There was no signs of sexual trauma and no signs of a break-in. We initially figured her attacker had to be someone she knew, or the person managed to just bulldoze through the front door when she opened it. Maris lived alone. She did not have a boyfriend. We interviewed the whole basketball team, and none of them appeared to have reason. All of them had alibis, which could be verified, and none of them spoke about anyone on the team or within the CU athletics who would have killed her. We turned to her family and those who knew her within CU, and... Didn't really come across any options there. The autopsy concluded she had died sometime between 11 p.m. and 1 in the morning before being found that Monday morning, and we psychoanalyzed our killer, most likely a young white man with violent dispositions in his past. This might have been his first murder, even though he covered his tracks. We looked for cameras in the street and came up empty. Not only do we not know who was in the area, but the nearest cameras at the intersections north and south of her apartment complex do not reveal any results. We did a check of nearby predators, but... That didn't yield anything. In fact, by the time Wednesday rolled around, we were no further than we were two days earlier. But it was Wednesday when we were handed another murder, this one of 24-year-old Cindy Roberts. Roberts lived in a house with two other girls. She was found dead within her own bedroom. Neither of the roommates attested to hearing or seeing anything. Both were in heavy shell shock the morning of Cindy's murder, though. 
Roberts was killed with what appears to be wire, the kind of wire one could easily buy at your local hardware convenience store. The wire dug into her throat, causing Roberts' skin to tear wide open while inevitably choking her. Interestingly enough, there were signs of a struggle. Some parts of the room looked off, according to the roommates, although one has to wonder how her two roommates managed to sleep through all this, even though Robert's bedroom was on the ground floor and the other two girls lived upstairs. The window was also open, although the roommates weren't sure if Roberts liked the window open or not. The roommates were also unsure about whether anything was stolen. Roberts worked full-time as a server for Giori's, an Italian restaurant in East Cardonia. According to some of her colleagues, she had an on-again, off-again relationship with one of the line cooks. Now, apparently the two had been rather vicious with one another, but the line cook, Desmond Ray, didn't have a good alibi, although nothing fully connected him to the crime either. While waiting for more evidence and forensics to come forward, another murder occurred earlier this day. This time, it was a 29-year-old woman, Lachey Palsley, who was gunned down in the back, three bullets which pierced her right lung, spine, and her major main artery. She was most likely dead in less than a minute after being shot. Shots were reported in, although the anonymous tip only heard the shots. We spent the next day casing the street, but nobody saw anybody. The shots were reported Thursday night at 11.46 p.m. Lachey was walking home from her job at the corner pharmacy. Lachey had clearly not been raped or robbed, just killed. Her death was especially bloody, and looking into her family and friends, there were a few potential red flags. A couple shady members involved with crime and drugs. So we started tackling Lachey's background, curious to see if maybe she got caught in the family drama. So, what brings you here? You have three murders, each apparently done by a different person. See, I disagree. I think the same person did all three murders. What? Jordan looked at Elias with rather downcast eyes. No, these three crimes have nothing to interconnect them. They each have a different death, a different type of violence, different motives. There's no way the simpleton killer of Maris then becomes a wire strangler by Wednesday and then has access to a gun on Thursday night. No escalation of a serial killer happens. This isn't a serial killer. Most likely these three different men with vendettas approach these women. Or even more likely some men were trying to steal from these women. I don't know, but these aren't connected. I just feel that they're connected. So this is why you're going crazy. Because everyone else agrees with me that there's nothing here to connect them and you're just adamant that this is all keyed into one murderer? Listen, all these women were in their 20s. They're gorgeous women. For starters, maybe a man who got denied by these women is killing them for revenge. That's a reach. Wouldn't he have the same M.O.? Unless he's purposely trying to make sure we don't connect these crimes, because instead of looking for one individual, the police will spend three times the time looking for three murderers. Okay, so besides age, what connects these murders? Uh, well, I'm still looking for the connection and the source of how they'd be murdered. Joy, so all you have is a feeling. I know you don't have anything to truly believe, but at least take my word, experience and vibe off these murders. I know the same man is behind them. Do you know how often this happens? Where we suppress our gut and then become betrayed by our gut later on? I just need a little more to give you my satisfaction of belief. What makes you think, in words besides your feelings, that these cases are interconnected? Three young women are killed without anyone watching or anyone seeing. There's no clear motive. They aren't raped nor robbed, with the possible exception of Cindy Roberts, although I'm not sure that it's credible to say that she's been robbed. 
There's a man somewhere in Cardonia who's connected to these murders. He might be a serial killer. He might be after women for a particular reason. He might have a reason to kill them, and these women knew or didn't know that reason. There wasn't a struggle with Mary Gibbons, so she probably knew him. I'm willing to bet Cindy Roberts and Lachey Palsy knew the guy, too. It's going to be downright hard to find out how these three women are interconnected. They probably didn't know each other. But the killer would have known all of them. The ability to stop crime and hunt down criminals has changed so much in the last few decades, but I don't know if we're this good. We have to be that good, Elias whispered. These girls deserve justice, and if he's not discovered, there could be more women who could be killed. <sighs> okay, 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 you're right. Fuck, I hate when you're right. So tomorrow, will you do some investigating with me? What kind of investigating do you want to do? I want to talk with those close to Mara, Cindy, and Lachey. I want to find details that we might have missed in the initial interviews. Okay, and if that doesn't work, then I want to do some digging, look into their childhood friendships, family, friends, where they've lived all their life, where they've worked. I want to know about someone who was sketchy these, this last decade to these girls. All of this to find a single killer, which may not even be the case. All of this and more. <laughs> You're lucky I have nothing else to do but this job. Jordan admitted as she pulled open the folders to look at the photos. Do you want to keep these, or can I borrow them? You can take them, Elias shrugged. I have copies back at my desk. I'm probably going to spend the night doing some research, and it'll give me time, and you time, to muse my theories. Okay. What time are we going to meet up tomorrow? I'll come to your place at 10 in the morning. Perfect. I'll set an alarm for 9.50. Classic. Do you mean to walk you out to your car, too? Well, you know, since you offered, why not? Jordan took the folders and tossed them into her large purse, which she used mainly for folders and papers. They're all weird cases on their own, Elias sighed as he opened the door and they left her office. Each of them seems to have no purpose. Why kill when these girls didn't have anything to offer? It screams as if there's something personal involved in these crimes. But what are the chances of a same killer using such different methods of killing to, to each of these girls? Maybe that was the effect. Clearly, if the three were killed similarly, we would know it was most likely the same killer. But hand strangulation, wire strangulation, and gunshot wounds don't all point to the same person. It would be smart, especially if he's doing this more of a job or with a personal vengeance instead of a true need to kill, and he didn't lift anything off the victims. There's no missing objects for trophies, none of that? Nope. Elias shrugged while calling for an elevator. Maybe this guy was someone they all went on dates with and then he got turned down. Maybe he knew them in childhood and they bullied him or something. Unless there are skeletons buried with these girls, you know, let's say they're all involved with the same drug dealer. Didn't you say they were all clean cut except for some of those within Lachey's circles? Eh, it's still possible to hide a secret in 2060. <laughs> Please. These were probably good women, which some men, some man, then took advantage of. The elevator opened and the duo stepped inside. We psychoanalyzed the man who might have been behind Maris's murder. We didn't do any psychoanalysis for those behind Sydney and Lachey's yet, but it's scheduled. So what happens when the same typology of the potential killer shows up? Jordan asked. Will people believe the idea that there's a single killer out there? <sighs> You'd be surprised how many young white men with violent tendencies there are. <laughs> Trust me, I'm aware. Jordan snickered as the elevator opened up and led them outside to the Cardonia Federal Employee Garage. Not too far away was the entrance to the building where Elias worked. The more you talk about this, the more convinced I am that maybe a single man is behind it. Thank you. But it's just impossible to see how or why right now. I 
have a small gut feeling most likely brought on by your gut feeling. All I ask is to trust in the theory. Proof will come later. How later? That's the real question I have. And you know me, I am bound to believe once I see something to believe in. <laughs> no wonder all the boys are lined up to date you. You're so quick to be open-minded. I'm a lawyer. We're both open and closed-minded at the same time. With your attitude, I'm not surprised you won the case of a century today. Oh my gosh, it was a simple murder trial. And you did amazing. Thank you. Do you think he did it? Elias asked, which caused Jordan to sigh. She stopped in the middle of the parking lot and thought for a moment. There are little pings of doubt. I told the DA I wanted more evidence, but he was convinced this could go to trial. We never got stronger details from the autopsy. The forensics of him in the car don't say anything, because of course there would be traces of him in his wife's car. There was nothing confirmed about the fire. They couldn't find the source of the element that started that fire. So you push all that aside, and you're left with three theories. The husband did it, a random guy did it, or it was an accident. And the accident seems far-stretched. 15% of murder is done by a stranger, so the husband is the clear probability. So what happens? He probably was drinking, broke his commitment and sobriety, maybe met her outside the bar. There's no cameras, we don't know. He pushed her off the road, maybe yelled at her, then he got physical, maybe he killed her, and maybe he called a friend, there was a record of a call being made and someone picking it up, but apparently the friend lost the phone, so then who, who fucking knows what that's about? But then maybe. James knew how to start a fire, you know, accidentally. He might have brought a cigarette with him. It would have been easy to just toss that cig into the engine with the smallest bit of flame, and that might explain why they can't find the source, and I don't know. He drove away. Shame we might never know what happened. Jordan and Elias continued their walk and arrived at her car. She unlocked the door and climbed in. She started the car and rolled down the window. Tomorrow at 10, I'll be your co-detective. You won't regret it. I'll make sure you try the case once we crack it. <sighs> Sounds like my kind of party. She backed out of the space within the rather desolate parking garage before heading out for the eggs of the garage while Elias D'Angelo stood still for a second before returning to his office. Thank you so much for listening. For more podcasts and work done by me, Matt Rebar, check out my website at www.mattrebar.weebly.com. Tweet or Instagram me at Reebstar, H-R-I-B-S-T-A-R. And if you missed it, all 10 episodes of season one, Unconscious, Subconscious, are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. Until next time. <laughs>